Today's reading is Daniel chapter 5, verses 17 through 28. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. My mistake, I wasn't supposed to read that part. <laughs> Starting in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hands is your breath, and whose all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. One of the things I was thinking of as we were singing today is um, what are the benefits of being in a pandemic? What did we, what do we gain from the pandemic? And one of the things that I think, I hope the church learns is people were so edgy to not be able to attend church that um, I hope that builds in them a desire to 
to return to church on a regular basis and see Sunday worship is really important. That could be one of the benefits of, of uh, pandemic. The other one occurred to me today. Um, when we sing, we're singing with our faces covered. So to sing, you got to sing a little bit louder, right? So when we take these things off and we sing, hopefully we'll sing a little louder. So this week, as we were working on the job description for the worship leader, um, that was one of the things that was in there is the sound of Trinity is the congregation singing. That's, that's the sound we want. So I'm hoping that this will be one more thing that God brings out of the pandemic for good is when we take our masks off, we'll sing a little bit louder and it'll just sound more like Trinity. So um, trying to be optimistic. <laughs> With that, let me open us in prayer and then we'll turn to God's word. Uh, Lord, um, there is no power of hell, no scheme of man that can pluck us from your hand. You said that yourself, that we are your sheep and that you will guard us safe to the end. So Lord, thank you for that assurance. And may we walk in the knowledge that whatever opposition we face, it's not too much for you. It's, it's nothing that you can't handle. And so Lord, we ask this morning uh, your blessing on the Crumry family. Uh, big changes over the next couple of months, and we just ask that you would be leading and guiding through all of that as um, Ramey and Jen have to prepare the house to sell. Lord, would you give them um, a, a selling price? Would you have an offer come in that would make us gasp? That would just be amazing that you were able to do that in, in very quick time. And Lord, as uh, Kayla is preparing to go off to college, we pray that you would be uh, lining everything up for her in the most wonderful way, that it would be prepared for her to go, and that would be a good experience. Lord, we pray for her while she's at college. Lord, you promised that you would not let one of your sheep slip through your fingers, and we pray that for Kayla, that you would keep her safe and grounded in the love of Christ, even in, um, uh, when she's off on her own in a different setting. Father, we pray for Jeannie as she has to decide on how to, um, what to do with the, the living situation that she has with Remy and Jen gone. And that's a huge decision, it's a weighty one. And so we ask that you would grant her extraordinary wisdom, that you would help her to see clearly the best path forward for her personally, and that you would bring that about. And Father, for Kyle and uh, Anne-Marie, Lord, their plans in the future, we just pray that you'd bless them too as Remy and Jen are leaving. Uh, they'll be out of the, um, off to the other side of the country and uh, so would you bless them with a uh, strong connection with their parents and uh, also with uh, a, a grand future for them father we also want to pray for calvary ev free they're going to have this big huge shot come this fall where they get a new worship leader and he's not going to be like what they used to do he's going to do some things different um, lord it's our conviction that he will do them better but um that's going to be a change, and change is always difficult within a church family. So would you grant them, uh, as a whole church, as a worship team in a whole church, would you grant them the grace to accept change um, in, a, in a spirit of, of unity and kindness? And, and uh, Lord, we pray that Ramey's addition to that, that leadership team would take them in a new direction. And Father, we also pray for them as Ramey will take on the job of small group leader in addition to music. And uh, that'll be a challenge for him, and I pray that you would flourish him in that position as well and lord that reminds us that we will have a new worship leader and so we pray that you would lead us to the right person for that job thank you for the work we've done on a job description uh, i pray for Ramey making some connections with music ministries in the area and uh, help us to to form a solid plan for moving forward with uh, finding that person and lord our, our 
primary goal, our primary desire in finding a new worship leader is, Lord, that it will be somebody who will lead us closer to you. Uh, Lord, that it will be somebody who every Sunday would direct our attention away from the cares of the world and onto Jesus Christ to remind us that we are saved by grace and uh, to lead us in worship and, uh, and in, in praise of you. And Lord, we also want to pray for Jonathan Racy as he's had a fire in his house and all of those uh, pieces that are in motion right now, all these this, this parts of the machine that are, that are happening. Lord, we pray for the best outcome for Jonathan, uh, that you would uh, move things together in, in a wonderful way so that Jonathan would be blessed by losing his house. Imagine that. <laughs> um, you've promised that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are, uh, are called according to your purpose. And that includes burning down their house. So um, be, uh, be at work in, in Jonathan's situation as well. Lord, we turn now to your word and we need you, Holy Spirit. Help us to see and to understand. Help us to hear what it is that you're telling us this morning from your word. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Let, let's face it. The best days of this nation are behind it. It's been decades since we had a strong leader who made it uh, the top military and economic power in the world. And the leaders since then have kind of just ridden on his coattails, ridden on his achievements. Now there's serious questions about the legitimacy of the person who's in leadership currently. Are they legitimately in office? Are they supposed to be there? On top of all that, there is this rising foreign power in the East. It's challenging the military dominance of the nation. And the current leader seems to be underestimating the threat. It's hard to say, but the handwriting is on the wall for this nation. I'm speaking, of course, about Babylon under Belshazzar. Babylon had reached its pinnacle. It had reached its height under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. It, that's when it achieved its greatest uh, um, moment in history. And since then, it's been about 30 years since, since Nebuchadnezzar has died, and the nation has been led by just a series of pretty ineffective kings. Uh, one of them only lasted in office a couple of months. Uh, when one of his generals, um, Nabonidus, you know, I said that 400 times this week and never messed it up until this morning, and then I couldn't say it. Nabonidus. One of his generals, Nabonidus, was part of the conspiracy to, to overthrow this king, and to his surprise, they made Nabonidus king. Now, it doesn't seem to be his kind of thing, and so uh, he was more of a religious reformer, and so what he did is eventually he, he imposed a kind of self-imposed exile into Arabia. And he put his son, his oldest son, in charge of the nation. His son is Belshazzar. He's the heir apparent. And he is acting for about 10 years now as the prince regent over the empire. Um, he isn't really the king, but he's acting like he is. So as he's ruling in this, Cyrus, the king of Persia, has just been expanding his kingdom phenomenally. He is headed north from Persia, up uh, into uh, uh, Armenia, and over, and he's taken over all of Turkey. Um, it's just been a really successful campaign, uh, this military power. And what's going on now is he's on the brink of invading Babylon. He's been picking off some of the, the border uh, cities, and he's, he's gearing his army to invade Babylon. And so um, what we're at, where we're at in this history is uh, this, this, we're coming to the end of the Chaldean rule in Babylon and coming to the rise of the Medes and the Persians. So what is Belshazzar's great plan? 
when, when he's facing this military power that's threatening Babylon, well, he has sent troops and he's, he's engaged them a couple of times, but his big plan now is he's going to have a party. Instead of equipping his lords with money and troops and sending them to those frontier cities and saying, defend us from Cyrus, he calls them in and has them and his court in to have a big, huge party to celebrate in the midst of this looming king of Persia that's, that's bearing down on them. So what's going on now is, it, like I said, it's been about 30 years since the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is probably in his 70s or 80s, depending on how old he was when he was first called into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's court. So he's been in like semi-retirement for a while. We just haven't heard about him. In the book, it haps really quick from one thing to the next, but he, he's been somewhat retired. And so let's this morning see what would call Daniel out of semi-retirement, what would draw him out. Now remember, chapters 4 and 5 are one unit. Um, they're, they're one thought. Um, in chapter 4, that was uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that warned him about his pride. And Daniel came in and interpreted it for him and was terrified. And he said, oh, king, let this happen to somebody else. But it befell Nebuchadnezzar. And he was given the mind of an animal and wandered in the field for seven years or seven periods of time until he learned that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will. And he was humbled. So now chapter 6 is kind of the other half of that equation. And we'll see with Belshazzar that um, the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. He gave it to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's not given it to Belshazzar. That's the bad news for him. So the section begins, uh, beginning in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So what you need to hear immediately is those first two words of this chapter. Hear them in the, the way that the Jews in exile would have heard them. What would they have thought? King... Belshazzar. He's not the king. He will never be the king. But he has crafted himself as the king. There's some historical documents that talk about him as the, as the uh, prince regent, kind of beginning to take onto himself some of the prerogatives of the kingship. And so from Daniel, we see that he actually calls himself toward the end of his reign. He calls himself a king. So hear it as one of the Jews in exiles would hear. King Belshazzar, and roll your eyes. Is, you're not a king. That's just not what you are. But he throws this great feast. He, he has this tremendous feast for a thousand of his lords. And all of these people come. And, and so what's going on is his, his kingdom is waning. His days are, are fading. And his result is, let's have a party and remember the, the glories of the past. That's why he goes and he says, now get the, the stuff that dad took from Jerusalem and bring it out and we'll use it for the party. He, he's parading it in front of his lords and his wives and his concubines to say, remember how great the kingdom is. They're not his. He didn't capture them. His father, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, and by the way, his father is not Nebuchadnezzar. His father is Nabonidus. 
So why would they call him your father? Because it comes up a number of times in this. Well, the way that the word father was used, it could mean your grandfather. And it's possible that Belshazzar's mother was a granddaughter of uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar. So that could work. That could be how it is. Or it can mean predecessor. So the person who was previous on the throne. And we can forget about the people between Nebuchadnezzar and, and uh, Nabonidus because they were pretty ineffective. So your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, that's probably what's going on. But what Belshazzar is doing is he hasn't really accomplished anything. He's relying on the past. Let's remember the past glories. We'll see this again when he talks to Daniel, and it's really blatant then. So rather than, than giving those troops the, the money, or the lords, the troops and the money to go defend, he, he's just going to sit down and party. And he drinks his wine in front of thousands. Now it says that he, um, when he tasted the wine, uh, it could mean that you know, he took a sip and went, yeah, get the goblets, but it's probably not. It probably means when he had consumed some of the wine. So maybe he's a little, little loose in the head right now, a little you know, well lubricated for the, the occasion. And he decides, hey, go grab that stuff. Now, don't forget, where did Nebuchadnezzar put those things? He took them out of the, the temple in Jerusalem and put them in the temple of his God. And so when, when Belshazzar says, go get them and bring them here, go in and take them out of the temple of my God and bring them here. And don't forget that his father is this religious reformer who's trying to change the, the religion in, um, in Babylon. Um, n um, Nabonidus wants to replace Marduk as the chief god in the, in the uh, pantheon of Babylon with his favorite god, Sin. He's a moon god. And so there's just so much political maneuvering going on right now that we don't see, unless we know a little bit of the history, that this is a really dangerous move. This is really something incredible. So they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and stones. The Jews in exile must have recoiled at this. Those goblets, those vessels that they used in the temple were sacred. They were not allowed to leave the temple. They had to count them when they brought them out, count them when they brought them back in. They had to be handled by Levites alone and, and all of this. And so to see them trotted out and brought out in front of the public must have had, you must have had the Jews when they first read this gasp at that. How could he be so brash? How could he be so vain and arrogant that he would do that? Well, God doesn't take to that particularly kindly. Verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. So God immediately responds to this affront. Um, it says the fingers wrote, but it, through the rest of it, it's referred to as a hand. So it's probably this hand writing on the wall. Um, and, and it's opposite the lampstand. God wants to make sure, Belshazzar, I want to write this as clearly as possible so you can't miss it. So I'm going to put it right here in the spotlight on the stage, and you pay attention. And so that's, that's what God does, is God brings to his attention. Here's the affront. Verse 6, then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Belshazzar is terrified that, that um, his limbs gave way. He talks about his hips. So basically what happened was his knees, his legs gave out underneath him. This was so terrifying to see this hand writing on the wall that his legs gave out. That's why it says his knees knocked. Um, have you recognized so far how much um, English idioms we get from this? The handwriting's on the wall. Your days are numbered. His knees are knocking. It, it, this is a really popular story for some of these reasons. So the king is terrified. 
the color has run out of his face, his knees have weakened, and he's, he's looking at this handwriting on the wall, and he's alarmed. He doesn't know what to do with it. So verses 7 through 9, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. He screams, get them in here now! The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third in the kingdom, uh, third ruler in the kingdom. Then the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or make it known to the king what the interpretation was. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So, so here's the thing. He calls loudly for these guys. This is, by the way, third strike for these clowns. They have not been able to answer one single question in this entire book so far. These guys got to be out of a job soon, I would imagine. He, he calls them in, and, and it says the king called loudly, and the king declared, and King Belshazzar. And again, roll your eyes when you hear that. He's not the king. Whoever reads this writing and shows me the interpretation, why is it that he can't read the writing? Well, it is um, probably written in Aramaic, but Aramaic, like Hebrew, way back then, was only the consonants. It didn't have the vowels in there. So you would have to know the context of the writing to understand what the writing was. So it's possible the enchanters came in and went, I'm not sure what word that is. I, that makes me so comfortable. That was my entire experience my first year of Hebrew. <laughs> I would look at a word, and I have no clue what word that is. To know that the astro astrologers and the wise men of Babylon did the same thing because they weren't sure what the vowels might be around it. And by the way, when we interpret, we, Daniel hasn't told us what the writing is, but when we get to the point where we interpret it, they could guess that and still go, I haven't a clue what that means. So they're, they're just lost. But, but the king, <laughs> um, can you hear me roll my eyes when I say that? The king promises that they would have, uh, they would be clothed in purple, that royal color, and have a chain of gold around their neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third ruler? Because it's as high as he could make anybody. He's the second. <laughs> Nabonidus is the first ruler. He's just out of town. So that just kind of, again, is one of those little clues that there's this, this strong irony when we're dealing with King Belshazzar. And again, verse 9, it's repeated that his color changed and his, his lords are perplexed. He, he hasn't gotten an answer to this. So what was written on the wall? <laughs> We've got to find this out. Uh, or verses uh, 10 through 12. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. <clears throat> uh, let not your thoughts, thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of all the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems was found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. So it says the queen. Now it could be Belshazzar's wife. I think it might be referring to the queen mother, an older woman who was around when Daniel was in office and doing these things. And so she's aware of Daniel's history. So it might make sense if, if it was the queen mom. Besides, mom's related to Nebuchadnezzar, and so there's some nice connections there. 
but she recalls this man who has done this before. She, we're reading this book, and it goes really fast. So it was only you know a week or so ago that, that we had this experience. For these folks, it's been 30 or 40 years. And she goes, don't forget. Hey, I remember there's this guy. There's this guy in the kingdom. And she describes him just like Nebuchadnezzar did. And then here's that irony again, right in the middle of this. Um, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief. By the way, he's your father, and you're not the king, but your father the king. So you get that kind of rubbing the salt in the wound. And so she says, now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. So previously, Daniel went to the king and said, hey, I can do this. Just, you know, let me come in and talk with you. Now it is the queen mum who comes in and says, um, I can do this. I, I know a man who can solve this. And so the only words that have been used so far to describe Belshazzar that he's terrified, right? His knees knocks and everything. Listen to how Daniel is described in this section. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods is found in him. He was made chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding, because uh, uh, an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interp dream, interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems. Do you get the contrast that, that, that Daniel is painting here? Daniel is exalted. He's held up as this wonderful example, and our great quote-unquote king is knocking his knees together. We're supposed to see this and, and, and recognize the irony of that. So, verse 13, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Don't miss that. You are Daniel. You're in exile. You have been defeated. He's still retreating back to the glory days, to Nebuchadnezzar's successes. It was Nebuchadnezzar who brought him in, who brought Daniel in, who defeated Judah. And he's still appealing to that, kind of reminding Daniel, hey, don't forget who you are, like he would forget. I think this is more for Belshazzar's effect to make himself feel better. And so he, he says, you are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my king, who the king my father brought from Judah just so you remember. Now listen to what he asks. Verse 14. I have heard, I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods lives in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and with a chain of gold around your neck and be third ruler in the kingdom. If you can, if, if you can do this, he's been, the, the bill of goods, the, the description of Daniel that he's been given so far is, he's going to nail this. And Belshazzar is still doubting, if you can do this. So he, he offers that same thing, makes that same presentation to him, purple, chain of gold, third in, third in the kingdom. Listen to Daniel's response. This is an 80-year-old man, semi-retired, probably pretty well off by now. He's, he's had a very successful career. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts, let, uh, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known its interpretation. I don't want your stuff. I'm not interested. 
I think Daniel has got that same attitude about, you're not really the king. I'm not very impressed. I have dealt with much bigger people than you. Remember your father, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, your father? I've worked with him. You're small fries. So he's not interested. He's kind of dismissing it. But he says, yeah, but I'll give you the interpretation. So here we go. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he would raise up, and whom he would, he humbled. Nebuchadnezzar was it. He was the king. He is the model that everybody's looking back to. That's the kind of king we want again. Belshazzar, you ain't it. Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down before his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it whom he will. There's a threat in that statement that's, that's given directly to, quote-unquote, King Belshazzar. You haven't been given the kingdom. You're acting like a king, and now the Most High is going to respond. So Daniel repeats the story from last week and in, a, in a sense of a warning. So verse 22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Now, how, did how would Belshazzar know all of this? Do you remember how it ended last week? The whole chapter was King Nebuchadnezzar writing a letter to his subjects. So, of course, he would know this. You think they, they got a letter from Nebuchadnezzar and threw it away a couple of weeks later? This was probably required reading in school. Don't forget, the king said this. So, Belshazzar has, is familiar with this. Uh, but he hasn't humbled his heart, though he knew all this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk from them. And you've praised gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, who do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. In other words, Daniel is preaching a great sermon to the king right now. He is exegeting for the king, um, Daniel chapter 4. The king was humbled. The Most High brought him down. In the end, he learned the lesson that that is the God to pay attention to. But you, Belshazzar, you have totally ignored what, what God has taught Nebuchadnezzar. You've exalted yourself, and you not only have exalted yourself by putting yourself out as a king when you're not, you went beyond that, and you flaunted the God who you should be paying attention to, the God who Nebuchadnezzar learned from by bringing articles out from his temple and treating them like they're, like they're red solo cups to party out of. You haven't learned. And instead, using these vessels which were prepared and holy to Yahweh for his worship in his temple, you're praising gods of gold and silver, iron and bronze, wood. Gods that can't see, can't hear, can't do anything. They just stand there and look pretty. But this God, he has got your life in his hand. 
and your times are in his hands, and he will raise you up, and he will bring you down. That's his warning. This was a tremendous effect, uh, offense. What Daniel has just done is given King, Neb- or King um, Belshazzar an important theology lesson. And it's an important theology lesson I think we should probably stop and listen to for a moment. So Belshazzar has used these objects that are reserved for worship of the true and the living God for a party. Now, in our day, we don't have a temple in Jerusalem with holy, sacred objects in it. That, that's, that's a special place. In, in our day, something different is going on. In our day, we are the vessels. We're the temple. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? 2 Corinthians 6.16. For you are the temple of the living God. 1 Timothy 3.15. The household of God is the church of the living God. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Hebrews 3.6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and you are his house. So the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar, or that uh, um, Belshazzar didn't learn was the things that are holy to God are to be treated holy. For us, instead of looking at a, at a house, looking at, at a building and saying those things that are in there are sacred, we have to look to ourselves and not, not only us, but our entire lives are sacred and holy to God. These are the things that, that we have to protect and we have to watch over. In that list of quotes, only one of them was about sexual immorality. The rest had much broader application. You are the temple of the living God. That has tremendous implications for you. That means something for you. We ourselves are that temple now. And we're not confined to Jerusalem. We wander around the world. And so we're exposed, not when somebody comes charging into Jerusalem, but just living our daily lives. We're exposed to those same kinds of dangers. God was not content to allow those things intended for his worship to be used for the glory of other gods, and he won't tolerate it with us. So what do we learn? What can we learn from Belshazzar in this? First of all, don't think too little of yourself. We are his house. We are his temple. We are being built into a spiritual house. That has dignity. It has purpose. It has meaning for us. So don't think that you're, you're inconsequential. It doesn't matter what I do or who I am. It matters tremendously. Not every rock is going to be the, the cornerstone or the, the decoration on the front. Some rocks are, are not so visible, and that's fine. They're all important to the building. So don't think too little of yourself. That wasn't Belshazzar's problem. He thought too much of himself. So we need to learn from that, too. Don't think too greatly of yourself. You are, in all of the parables, you are the servant. You are not the master of the house. You are not the king. You are the servant. Don't let yourself slide into the king role. Um, We will rule with him, but only under him, not not equal to him. We've been given a a task to do, and we must be busy about that until the king returns. That's one of the messages that, that Jesus repeats over and over through the parables, is He's going away for a period of time. Here's what I want you to do. When I come back, I will have an accounting. What have you done? So if we get into Belshazzar's problem where we think we're more than we are, we can slack off and let other people do that. I'm too important. I'm too big. That's a bad place to be. 
So we've been given to the, that task to do till the king returns, so, so do it. So don't act like you're the king. You're not. Recognize that you are in an exalted position as the servant of a king who will never be defeated, a kingdom that will never go away. So don't misuse the vessels that God intends for worship. That is, not just your physical body. Don't engage in, in sexual immorality. Please, don't engage in sexual immorality. But that's the minimum. The, the truth expands well beyond that. Don't use what God has given you, your life, your body, your intellect, your purpose, to make yourself look more important than you are, to make you think that you are much more important than you are. Now, there are limits to that. That doesn't mean you can never you know, do anything so that other people notice. In, um, in uh, Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your shi light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your, God, your Father who is in heaven. So there is a point of, hey, I am doing these things and this is my light that's shining. But you have to be careful to say, that doesn't make me more important than anybody else. That doesn't make me the big guy in the room. So don't use the vessel that God has given you, your physical body, your intellect, your life, your influence, to make yourself more important. I am such a big deal. You just can't believe how important I am. Let me explain to you how important I am. That, that's that's going to invite some handwriting on the wall. Don't use these things for pleasure with no mind to how God intended those vessels to be used. Now, that doesn't mean don't ever engage in anything pleasurable. We are not monks in the desert. But what we have to say is we are vessels being built into this holy temple for God. We are, we are part of this holy temple, and God intended it to be used in a very specific way. And so those things that were in the temple were not taken out, taken home, and, and given to the kids to play in the bathtub with. So we have to be careful with our lives to say, God has given us rich and abundant pleasures. There are so many things in this world to enjoy, and there are so many things in this world that will promise to make us enjoy them that ultimately are going to fail. Let's go back to remember how did God intend us to be, in, to delight in this world? How does God intend us to engage in enjoyment in this world? And, and please, don't use these things to serve other gods. Don't use your life, your authority, your power, your intellect, your, your passions to serve other gods. In Daniel's day, those gods couldn't move. They just propped them up. As a matter of fact, sometimes they had to chain them up so they wouldn't fall over. Um, Psalm 115 talks about them in a, in a pretty startling way. Listen, this is Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So in those days, this was this carved thing that sat there. Now, today, we're a little bit more sophisticated. We still use a lot of those same materials to make our gods, but our gods have gotten really clever, and they figured out how to talk to us, how to listen to us, how to move, how to flash pictures in front of us, and they get really good at entertaining us. That's not to say if you have an iPhone, you're a sinner, and you're going to hell. What it is to say is be careful that that device, that television, that, that computer, that, that tablet doesn't become that false god that can't ultimately make you happy, that can't ultimately fulfill you. Because 
it looks like it can, and it flashes a new thing in front of you every 30 seconds. So the next thing, next great thing is coming up. Uh, just keep scrolling through my TikTok. Remy and I were joking around that, or about that at, uh, the, this week, about the death scroll. You just keep doing this, waiting for it to get better. The, the more ancient version of that was um, hitting the next button on the remote for the TV when cable came out. There's nothing on. I've been switching through all 500 channels for the last 45 minutes, but I'm sure if I go around one more time, something good will be on. <laughs> that was the precursor to the death stroll. Those kind of things are built to distract you. And do you think that they're not idolatry? The New Testament doesn't let us get away with that. Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. We face the same threat. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But the temptation, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. So all of these things in the world, the temple is now out walking around and exposed to a whole lot more. So if we're going to learn from Belshazzar, what we have to learn is flee idolatry. Don't trot out those things God has given us and spoil them by using them to worship these false gods. Power, authority, good looks, money. The Tesla Model S 2017 that I looked at this week. Don't let those things take that place. So here's where it goes. Here's where Daniel goes next. Is finally, we're going to get to hear what, what was written on the wall. Verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. So after talking about this God in whose hand is Belshazzar's very life, in whose hand is his ways, everything that he's going to do, then from his presence, that God, a hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tikal, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So finally we know what was scribbled on the wall. What the... the, um, the holy graffiti was. So why was this hard for those guys to decipher? Well, first of all, like I said, there were no vowel dots, so there could be a couple of different words. But even if you got it right, what is mene, tekel, and parson? Well, they actually are weights. They have a, a scroll, a, 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 not a scroll, a drum kind of shaped thing in uh, the British Museum, and it's got those very three words written on it. They were weights that were used to, to um, measure precious materials. And so mene was um, what we would call a mina, which is about 500 grams. Tekel was a shekel, and that was about 10 grams. And parson was about 250 grams. So even if the wise men looked at it and go, well, that's what it is, I haven't a clue what that means. It took God's revelation to Daniel to come in and explain it to him. So here's, how it, here's what it looks like. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. So that 500 grams, that, that weighty kingdom, has come to an end. It's over. Uh, Belshazzar has, uh, oh, Tekel, uh, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tekel was the tiny one. That was 10 grams. So when, when he says, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting, you're 
dust on the scale, practically. You are not worth it. So you have elevated yourself as this big and important person in, in the kingdom, and you're not. And then Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Persians. So that one is 250 grams. And we'll look at this next week, but remember, or not next week, but in a couple of weeks, remember King Nebuchadnezzar's original dream? This image who had a head of gold, and then after that was an arm and chest of silver. 250, or 500 grams head. Um, Belshazzar, 10 grams, kind of wedged in between there. He's not supposed to be there. And then the Medes and the Persians of less weight, 250, that's been divided and given to them. So they're less. That, that's the picture that God has painted with this. So old 10-gram Belshazzar is in big trouble. He's been weighed and found wanting. I think it's a graphic way for God to pronounce judgment on him. It, it just it has this, this image that can't be escaped. So then verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold and uh, was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So even though Daniel had rejected the king's rewards, he bestowed them on him anyway. After he just found out that his kingdom is coming to an end, I'll make him third in the kingdom. Thanks. That's great. This is really good news. I'm third in the, in the, uh, in the kingdom that's about to just grind to a, a, a miserable halt. So Daniel's not terribly interested in it. I don't, I don't know that it ever actually happened because what we'll see next week is Darius is going to wind up putting him in, uh, back in charge. So did it happen? I don't, I don't know. But that was the pronouncement. Uh, verse 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, was killed. So when we look through history, we don't know when, and when or how he died. He just is gone. Um, it apparently was that very night. Now, was it the night of the party? That might be, it might be a bit of a long party. It might be after the party was over and Daniel had come in and interpreted. It might be, you know, a little bit later. But whatever it was, that very night that Daniel had announced to him what was going to happen, he died. How did he die? No clue. No idea. Daniel really, in these last two verses, really quickly wraps up a whole bunch of things. So let me just telescope them out a little bit for us for a moment. So Nabonidus the Chaldean at some point returned from exile and came to Babylon and he started making some pretty significant changes. But that's when Cyrus the king, the Persian, attacked. He started coming in from the north. And so uh, Nabonidus is there. He's trying to rally things, but when Cyrus came in, it was like a month and the city was captured. Um, they're not sure, historians aren't sure why the army was so terribly ineffective. It could be because Nabonidus came in and started changing everything in the midst of a whole bunch of changes anyway. But whatever it was, the person who invaded Babylon was Cyrus, the Persian. What Daniel mentions is Darius, the Mede. Now, Darius didn't ascend to the throne for another 17 years. So, um, why does Daniel kind of skip through that? Why does he jump over that so quickly? I think he does that because he's heading for chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we're going to hear about Darius. And so instead of trying to talk us through all of these things, he just jumps over and goes to Darius. And it says that Darius received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Um, when Darius was made king, he was about 28. And he died somewhere around 64. So what does it mean that he received the kingdom? 
um, after such a long period of time. I, I'm not sure. I don't know what Daniel's point there is. Hopefully next week we'll unpack that a little bit. But this is a, one section of uh, Daniel that makes critical scholars say, well, see, it was written in the first century B.C. It wasn't written at the time that Daniel was alive. It couldn't have been because Daniel guessed all of these kingdoms, and that can't happen. Yeah. You know what else they said? There was never any king named Belshazzar. <laughs> Guess what they found in, like, 1830? A scroll that said King Belshazzar. <laughs> so, you know, uh, these kind of things play out. I think when we look at this, we have to say that Daniel is a reliable source of history in some of this stuff. Uh, what he tells us is, is pretty authentic. So that's the transition. That's what's happened now is uh, we have f finally transitioned from the end of the Chaldean rule uh, with the death of Belshazzar and the defeat of Nabonidus and the arrival of King Cyrus um, he, coming in and setting himself up, what we've done is we've gone from that head of gold to the chest of bronze, or chest of silver, the chest and arm of silver. That's, that's the move that we've made. Now, there's another thing that we can learn from this too, I think. Um, how can we be good citizens of a nation that we know is doomed to fail? Um, I, I love America. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a terrible place. It's going to fail. It just is. Um, nobody gets to hang on to, to um, power that long. How do we look at Daniel and say, how do we remain faithful in the midst of that? And I think Daniel offers us some pretty good examples of how to do this. He lived in and served Babylon. He wasn't, like, heading out into the desert to hide and, and wait for the, the walls to come crashing down. He lived there. He served there. He worked in Babylon. He worked for its good. Um, but another part of him knew kingdoms come and kingdoms go. I'm part of a kingdom that won't go away. I'm a part of a kingdom that, that isn't going to disappear. So he doesn't retreat and shun the kingdom, but he doesn't disappear into it either. He doesn't become fully Babylonian and, and just be who, uh, who everybody else is. And so likewise, we live and work in, in America. And we benefit from the tremendous blessings that this country has offered us. But our full allegiance is not to America. If it were, then we would be no better than Belshazzar's lords. Were they able to warn the king? Were they able to correct the king? Were they able to, to do anything for the king? Oh, man, their fortunes were tied to his, and we'll just go along with him. Guess where they're at now? If if. Belshazzar was killed and his lords are still around, I'm not sure that they're going to be standing for very much longer. So likewise, if we marry ourselves too tightly to our nation, we won't be able to step back and critique it and say, hey, it's got some good points, it's got some bad points. There's, there's some things that are working really well and there are some things that need to be fixed. So if you love your nation, as a Christian, what you do is you work in your nation, you work for your nation, you serve your nation, and then you don't get so tied to it that you can't critique your nation. That you can't look and say, we can do better than this. Surely we can do better than this. Informed by God's word, informed by the scripture. So we can be like Daniel in that way, in standing close in, but also aloof at the same time. So um, to be good for our nation, we have to be heavenly minded. We have to remember, this isn't going to last. There's a kingdom that will last, and that's our true home. So don't forget Jeremiah's voice of warning to the exiles as they go in. Jeremiah 29, verses 5 through 7. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So do you hear what God told them? Go there, be involved, be engaged, be part of the society. But remember, you're in exile. And it's the same message to us. Be involved, be engaged, be working here. But remember, you're sojourners. And so that, that message from the very beginning comes ringing home again. Know that the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of men and gives them uh, and sets over them whomever he will. Um, that did not include Belshazzar. He was about to be removed. But it doesn't include us either. We're, we're t told to be engaged, to be part of it, but not to be lost in it. And so let's engage our world for their benefit. Let's do the job that the master has set over us because it will ultimately be good for our nation. That's why I've been really harping a lot on revival is that's the greatest thing we can do for America is pray for revival. That would be the greatest thing to happen in our nation. It has happened a number of times. It can happen again if God so wills it. God is sovereign in the affairs of man and sets over whomever he will. We could wind up gone like Babylon, or we could revive and, and come back. It's, it's up to God. But you have a role here to play here, and, and that's our role, is be salt and light. Have a message to the nation that isn't everything we do is wonderful, but critique, point out shortcomings, and pray. Let's pray. Lord, you are sovereign. You rule over the kingdoms of men, and you give it to whomever you please. And Lord, that is tremendous comfort to us to know that um, any president of the United States, arguably the most powerful position in the world at this point, um, is there because you put them there. And Lord, if the next rising power is China, then whoever the premier of China is, is there because you put them there. And so, Lord, we have nothing to fear from that. We have nothing to fear from the occupant of the White House, from whoever is in charge in Beijing or Moscow or wherever. Lord, you rule over the, the kingdoms of men and give it to whomever you please. But, Lord, ultimately we know that there is a king coming who will ascend to the throne that, that throne that will never be challenged, that rock that will destroy the idol and fill the earth. And so, Lord, help us remind, us, remind ourselves on a regular basis that that's our, our allegiance is to our king. And so, Lord, we pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it in, is in heaven. Amen.